Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell. It is a sobering Wednesday, uh, May the 25th, year of our Lord, 2022. Uh, ghastly news to talk about. A lot of news going on. We had primary elections. Uh, we've got a lot of noise to turn down today. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Wish it was happier times, folks, but we're going to press ahead because we must. We must go forth in hope. We'll cover the issues we need to. We'll fight the fights and need fighting. And even when it gets dark, we're going to keep moving forward. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today on Herd Tell. Uh, we're going to have to talk about uh, the shooting in Texas. We will in just a few minutes. We're going to open the show with that. Primary elections happened uh, last night. We will discuss them, run them down, the ones in Georgia especially, but also in Alabama and other places. We will touch on all of them. We have a great guest today, one of our favorites, M. Carpenter. She's a senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. She's an attorney. She's one of our legal experts. There was a ruling at the Supreme Court this week that uh, didn't get a lot of play in mass media, but law Twitter and our legal friends just absolutely exploded over this. It goes to representation. It goes to due process. Uh, it's kind of a complicated case, but it has a lot of tentacles into some of the problems we're having in the criminal justice system right now. M. Carpenter will be our guest on the program today. We will end on a good note like we always do, and it's a good note about love and a man who found it for the first time in his first marriage at the age of 95. Don't worry, he's doing pretty well. He's a retired opera singer. He actually performed at his own wedding. We'll bring you that good story because we've got a whole lot of ugly mess to wade through first. Let's just go ahead and get to it right now. Uh, the Texas school shooting uh, about 80 miles outside of San Antonio. Here's what we know as of right now. Now we'll preface this as we always do with breaking news. We will know a lot more tomorrow. We will know a lot more a couple days from now. So we're going to be a little light on the details here because these are going to change. In fact, the death toll has changed multiple times just in the last few hours before we recorded this for y'all. So as of right now, uh, 19 children are dead. Two adults are dead. One of those adults is a teacher in the school. school in Uvalde, Texas. This is about 80 miles outside of San Antonio. Another mass shooting. We don't know all the details above that. We will continue our uh, policy here. We will not name this gunman. We will not use his name here. You can find that if you really want to. The investigation will unroll and we will get into the motives and what's going on here. This apparently did not 
start out as a school shooting in particular. They chased this individual to there, uh, and law enforcement did kill this perpetrator. But here we go again. Already, the lines have drawn right where they always leave off, and coming right on the heels of Buffalo, we can imagine where this is going. We're already hearing uh, debates about guns. The identity of the shooter will bring up other things because of who he is and his background as it gets unveiled. And we're going to have to have another national conversation about why we have more mass shootings than any country in the world. This is such a tough topic and frustrating topic to talk about, especially when we just did this 10 days ago in Buffalo. Now, that's a very different situation. That looks like it was more racially motivated. We will find out what the motivations for this uh, despicable killer was. But we do know some overarching themes that are going to go on. People are going to start talking about guns immediately. People are going to start talking about why these things aren't prevented. They're going to start talking about why these folks aren't identified ahead of time. We're going to talk about security in schools. And most of all, we're probably not going to talk enough about these victims. In this case, a whole bunch of innocent children. This was an elementary school for grades two, three, and four. So kids roughly in the seven to 10-year-old age range. It's shocking. It's horrible. And it happens way too much. The flip side of that is people screaming, we need to do something about it. What are we going to actually do about it? A lot of people are going to go directly to guns immediately. Um, interestingly enough, I got an invitation to go on UK media, talk TV, as this story was breaking earlier in the evening. And that's the focus they had is like, you know, why don't you just outlaw guns in America like the rest of the world has? And we had to walk them through what the Second Amendment was in our constitutional system and how that's a lot more complicated than just passing laws and discuss it. To the rest of the world, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, the rest of the world also doesn't understand things like enumerated rights and how we have to hash out items like that. But I will say this because I don't want to get into the full gun debate right this second. We also want to go to something easy when we have a complicated, hard issue like this. It's easy to rail against the guns. Yes, we can talk about guns and gun control and how people keep getting guns that want to do evil, wicked things. That's a debate we should have. But that's not the only debate here. There's something obviously more going on for America to have more mass shootings than any other country in the world. Now, you can play with these stats, and we don't want to get into stats. You can make stats say anything you want. I understand other countries in the world have open war zones and open warfare and have more violence. But for the country that America is to have these mass shootings, there's definitely a societal component to this. There's a cultural component to this. There's why do these shooters do this? It's more than just the guns. When we go to study this issue and we start trying to figure out ways to actually deal with this problem, we need to start with a little humility. We need to understand that, yes, you're going to grab a policy idea here, there, and other and say, we must do this because of this. You need to understand something. You can't legislate the human heart. You can't regulate the human mind. And you really can't deal with, through policy, evilness and wickedness. Now, you can do some things to prevent it. You can do some things to deal with those people and maybe try to get them help beforehand or identify them as they radicalize, but just passing laws isn't going to solve that. When we deal with things like mass shootings, like a lot of complicated issues, the answer is going to be a lot more all of the above. But what we tend to do is we're going to grab one piece of this, the gun part, the evil part, the identity and the particular issues of the gunman. We'll probably get into some societal issues. We'll probably talk about people's families, things like this. We'll grab one of those issues 
and parade it like if we solve that one issue, like guns, like mental health, like evil, then we can solve the entirety of the problem. But that's just not true. It's more complicated than that. So let's be careful with our rhetoric going forward. Yes, we can have the debate over guns. Yes, we can have the debate over school security. We're probably going to have a debate over what this particular shooter's motives are that we don't know as of right now, but we will learn in the coming days, hopefully. We also need to understand that even once we know all the facts on the ground, the other fact is this still probably isn't going to make sense because to a normal functional human being, running into an elementary school and shooting a bunch of innocent children isn't going to compute even once we know all the facts on the ground. We need to understand all of the above, human nature, policy, what goes on to prevent these things, what goes on in these shooters' minds. All of that culminates in what happened here. And if we're really going to do something to start preventing these and reducing these mass shootings, we're going to have to deal with all of it, not just our little pet peeve part of it, and certainly not just the parts that drive the political and cultural news cycles. It's ugly. It's hard. Our heart breaks for the victims, and I fear we're going to keep doing it again because we keep repeating the mistakes of the past, which is the demand to do something, getting on our high horses of our priors, and not actually changing anything. More Heard Tell right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Okay, the Trump vendetta ride. I've been talking about it. A lot of other people have been talking about it, however you want to affirm it. Uh, Donald Trump was wanting to get revenge in Georgia because he felt Georgia was one of the places where he was really, really cheated in the 2020 election. If you buy the lie, which it is a lie, that he was cheated and that the election was rigged or stolen or however you want to phrase it. That didn't happen, but that's what President Trump wants folks to believe. And the idea was the vendetta rod was going to be in Georgia because of the Georgia runoffs, because of people like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who refused to go along with the program on the narrative that the election was stolen, of Governor Brian Kemp, who refused to go along with the narrative that the election was stolen. Uh, President Trump, former President Trump, really came out strong against both of these men. He supported uh, David Perdue, the former senator who was in one of those runoff races, by the way, and of Representative Jody Heiss, who was going to go after the Secretary of State. Now, Raffensperger especially was supposed to be dead in the water because he was going to be this squishy moderate Republican who stood up against the whole party and President Trump. Uh, We know about the phone call. We know about the pressure. We know all of that backstory. Well, the results are in from the Georgia elections last night, and Donald Trump's two endorsees on these two key races in the vendetta rod didn't just lose. They got embarrassed. Um, 
Governor Kemp in Georgia, you need over 50% to avoid a runoff. Governor Kemp almost won by 50 points. He absolutely destroyed David Perdue, who imploded as a candidate, uh, said some very controversial things over the weekend, had actually basically stopped campaigning. Uh, This is an embarrassing, embarrassing end to David Perdue's career that included being a U.S. senator at one point, among other things. Uh, Governor Kemp will go on to face Stacey Abrams in a rematch for the governorship later on. More surprisingly is probably the Raffensperger uh, result. Raffensperger not only won, he won outright. He avoided a runoff. Um, Brad Raffensperger uh, racked up 52% to Jody Heiss's 33%. There was also two other candidates that pulled uh, roughly 13% in that race. Raffensperger was supposed to be dead in the water as an electoral candidate, no matter whether you agreed with him or not. It was just he was going to pay a price for that. He held his ground, and now he's going to go to defend himself in the general election in his seat as Secretary of State. A lot of people are going to immediately push this to Trump and make it all about Trump. But I think it goes deeper than Trump, especially in Georgia. Remember, those Georgia recalls for the Georgia GOP was an embarrassment. They were embarrassed by that. The whole thing with Donald Trump right now is he wants to relitigate 2020 and get revenge for it. I think the deeper thing here beyond just Trump fatigue or Donald Trump himself is the electorate, especially the electorate in Georgia who did not come off looking good, the GOP electorate in those Georgia runoff races and how they were conducted and how a lot of them ended up staying home because they believe the lie about, you know, ballot harvesting and all this nonsense. Folks do not want to relitigate 2020, not even the Trump supporters, not even most of the Republicans. They don't want to relitigate 2020. I'm repeating it because there's some hard-headed folks out there looking at you, former President Donald Trump, that can't get it through their head. Even if you think something untoward happened there, it didn't. Folks still don't want to relitigate it. We got expensive gas. We got expensive food. We got a lot of issues going on in the world. Nobody wants to relitigate it. If the GOP decides to hitch their wagon to that nonsense, they're going to go down to defeat because nobody wants to talk about the last election. They want to move forward. Donald Trump is obsessed over it. And he took two really big hits on any of his future plans if it's all going to revolve around 2020, because this is a repudiation of that plan. Whatever else you thought, if you bought that big lie, if you didn't buy the big lie, whatever you think, folks don't want to look backwards. They want to know what you're going to do about their situation right now, today, in 2022. This is a refutation of Trump, yes, but don't go overboard on that. A lot of this is folks just don't want to go backwards. They want to go forwards. And if you don't learn that lesson, electoral candidates, you'll do so at your peril. More hotel right after this. to her tell okay she's one of our favorites we lean on her for sound legal advice but she is not your lawyer so nothing she says should be considered legal advice to you uh senior editor at ordinary-times.com a member of the bar in good standing she's a lawyer she's smarter than us we're going to have her explain this ruling to us like we're five years old m carpenter back on her tell how are you ma'am 
I'm very well, Andrew. Thank you. How are you? I'm just having a habeas kind of day. How about you? <laughs> I've had better. Uh, okay. So the Supreme Court came out with this ruling. Uh, I follow a lot of what we kind of jokingly call law Twitter, uh, kind of a collection of our various lawyer friends online for good reason, because they give good perspective on a lot of things. I've never seen uniform outrage at a ruling like this. Like we've seen divisive stuff like the abortion stuff over the last few weeks. Like every single lawyer I follow and talk to was just like, what is this? I was that the same reaction you got from this court ruling uh, in this uh, Arizona Department of Corrections ruling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it made me very angry. It was um, I've been very angry at the Supreme Court a lot lately. And, and this one may have <laughs> put me over the top. I've defended the court as an institution quite quite a bit over the years and, you know, argued against saying that all justices are, are partisan and that they're only ruling in their ideological uh, druthers. And uh, this this makes that very difficult to, to continue. OK, what is it about this case? Because and by the way, this was progressive lawyers. This was uh, conservative lawyers like all of them were like, we don't like this one. So let's let's get into the nitty gritty of this ruling. Um, it was a six three ruling. <laughs> just where do you even want to start with this? Because it's complicated. You basically have two guys that are on death row out in Arizona. This is not a conviction hearing. This is a hearing about their representation. Walk us through it kind of slowly so we are not know what we're dealing with. Before they get to the Supreme Court, why is this kind of a hearing important? Explain habeas to folks and kind of just give us the background here. Okay. Uh, yeah, so let's say you're on trial in state court for a crime and you have a bad lawyer, doesn't investigate your case, crucial facts that could show your innocence, they're never presented to the jury. So this and lots of mistakes are made, you're convicted, you go to prison. You go through all your direct appeals, the, you know, the appeal stage right after trial and you lose them all. Um, so your conviction at that point is final. And, then, and now you are in what they call the post-conviction stage. And that's kind of confusing maybe to a lay person because you probably think of conviction is happening when the trial is over and you're found guilty, you're convicted. But technically, you're not post-conviction until all of your direct appeals are exhausted. Um, usually that means you've gone all the way up to your state's highest court, their state Supreme Court, um, and all of your appeals have been denied. You are now, your conviction is final. So now you're in the post-conviction stage, and most state courts allow you to file a, post a petition for post-conviction relief. And some states call it a habeas, um, and it's also called a habeas at the federal level, habeas corpus, petition for writ of habeas corpus, which is basically get me back before the court. I have things that I want to, to raise. Um, so you file for your post-conviction relief in state court, and you have a new lawyer, but he's also a bad lawyer, and he doesn't bring up the fact that you had a bad lawyer at your trial. In other words, he does not raise the ineffective assistance of counsel argument for you at your post-conviction hearing. So you, you exhaust your state post-conviction efforts and you've lost those and, and you're, you now have to move on to the next stage, which is to file a habeas corpus in federal court. And finally, you say, hey, my conviction is wrong because I had an ineffective lawyer who did not do their job. Now, normally, you cannot raise an issue for the first time at the federal habeas proceeding. If you didn't raise it in state court, then you have forfeited your right to bring it up in federal court. And that's called procedural default. 
But back in 2011, in Martinez versus Ryan, the court had said there was an exception to this, and that's the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. And that makes sense. If your post-conviction lawyer failed to argue that your trial counsel was ineffective, then your post-conviction lawyer was also ineffective. So it's not really your fault that the issue wasn't raised. So Martinez says you can go ahead and raise it for the first time during your federal habeas petition. So here comes Justice Thomas and his merry band of conservative justices in this week's opinion. And they say that Martinez may allow you to bring that claim of ineffective counsel that your previous bad lawyers didn't raise, but, but we're not gonna let you present any evidence to prove it. So let that sink in. You can go into court and say, but I, I didn't have an effective lawyer and the courts won't let you put any evidence on. And I said, well, what is the chances do you think that they're going to agree with you that you had an effective lawyer at trial when they're not going to let you prove that in any way? So but they rely, the court is relying on USC 2254E2, which is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act from 1996, which is the law that says a federal court can't hold an evidentiary hearing on a petitioner's claim that was not brought up in state court. But that law was in effect in 2011 when Martinez came out. So Martinez, you know, kind of recognized an exception to that. Um, but here's the rub. There is no constitutional right to counsel for post-conviction proceedings. Once your direct appeals are done and your conviction is final, you don't have that triggered Sixth Amendment right to counsel for a habeas proceeding. They're actually considered like quasi-civil procedures. Um, so, you know, your lawyer in that stage, if that if they mess up, the court says that's attributed to you. It's not actually your fault, but it's now your fault legally. Your lawyer's poor performance is your fault. And that's not actually a new concept. A lawyer's mistakes can be held against their clients. That's not unusual. You know, if you um, somebody files a lawsuit against you and you hire a lawyer and they drag their feet, don't file an answer in time and you get a default judgment against you, you know, it's held against you even though it was your lawyer's mistake. That's not a new concept, but there has been an exception when the mistake is because of a constitutionally ineffective counsel. So what the court said here in this opinion is that because there is no right to counsel in a habeas or in post-conviction relief, then it can't be a constitutionally ineffective counsel argument because you didn't have a constitutional right to have that counsel, even though the ineffectiveness is going back to your trial court. The fact that your post-conviction lawyer didn't bring it up is not an effective counsel constitutionally. So that's, that's the crux of this case. But what makes it so infuriating, to me anyway, what, what this opinion is, has been so inflammatory? There's several things. First of all, I find it very uh, frustrating in, in, in any case, any criminal law decision, criminal case, when the opinion goes to great lengths to describe in detail the horrific and disgusting crimes that the defendants in the cases are accused of or convicted of. Almost like they're trying to justify the opinion by pointing out how terrible these people are. And that's the case in, in this. And this, these are two men facing the death penalty. They're two different cases and they, are, they have horrific facts laid out. Um, it's not necessary. Um, <laughs> the criminal the criminal law the system applies to you no matter what you're convicted of. So the fact that they lay out in detail the, the terrible things that these men are charged with that's that's number one. That's just inflammatory. 
Um, <laughs> one of the things that I saw on Twitter, which was, uh, so I know I'm not the only one who was disgusted by it, is there is a footnote uh, in Justice Thomas's opinion. It was Justice Thomas who wrote this. And <laughs> in it, he, he brings up the fact that the petitioner, the defendants in one of the two cases had said, you know, speaking of procedural default, when we were arguing all of this in the district court at the lower level, the state didn't even bring up the fact that I hadn't raised this issue in lower court. Justice Thomas's footnote says, well, we have the discretion to forgive a failure to raise the issue in the court below, so we're going to. So think about that. You are going to potentially be put to death because of uh, failing to raise an issue, and we're gonna let that happen but we're not going to hold the state to the same standard with a much less dire outcome. They didn't do their job. They didn't bring up this issue below, even though they were supposed to. We have the authority to forgive them for that. So the state here is forgiven. And this opinion is very heavy on the state's rights and what a burden it is on the state to be tied up in litigation over these claims and how they are. They don't want to step on the state's toes by uh, interfering with convictions any more than is, is necessary. And you know, very differential to state power and state rights. And that's that's very frustrating as well. And just the fact that they want to be this um, pedantic when it is death on the line, uh, it never sits well with me. You know, I think that when somebody is facing the death penalty, that is not the time to um, nitpick about whether or not uh, they should have um, raise this. What is it going to hurt in the long run to let these men put on the evidence that perhaps they did not have effective counsel? And, and in at least one of these cases, from what I have read, there is some pretty strong evidence in the defendant's favor that if the jury had heard it at his trial may have led to a different result. So basically, they are going to allow the state at this point to proceed to executions for uh, men because they had bad lawyers. And as much as I, I hate it, there are bad lawyers doing capital cases and appellate work, not so much with you know public defenders. I've talked about them before, especially when they're at the level of doing these kinds of cases. They're uh, very competent, great lawyers. But there are uh, a lot of, there are other attorneys that take these cases um, and that are not qualified to do it, and they're not, they're, they mean well, but it happens. There is, unfortunately, some bad lawyering that goes on here, and, you know, you, you might face death for that, and the fact that, you know, you're being held accountable for the failures of your lawyer, your educated lawyer, when you may not have much education yourself, your lawyer makes a mistake, and they say, well, that's your fault. You know, that, and, and that's one thing when you're fighting over money, but we are fighting for their lives here. So I've gone on and on, so I'll stop there. But that, that's what's going on, and that's why I'm angry and why so many other attorneys are angry about this opinion. I'm Andrew Donson on the M. Carpenter Show, where she has just gone 11 <laughs> minutes on Shin versus Ramirez, but that's fine. That's what we bring her on for. Um, Soda Mayor in her dissent uh, said this, that, this was, and I'm quoting her here, an extreme malfunction that the prejudicial deprivation of a right that constitutes the foundation of our adversarial system. She's talking about representation here. Um, I, I take it that's how you see it as well. But 
what do you think she means by a malfunction? Because this gets into legal terms. Like you said, this is a habeas hearing. It's very different from a trial. This isn't about the conviction itself. It's about how you got to the conviction. Um, when you get into the nuts and bolts of these legal things, how much is it important to make sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed? Because the general public, like me, I'm not a lawyer. You know, we don't understand all the procedural stuff, but that's what the court does a lot of rulings on, on the procedural stuff, on the nitty gritty details. How important is it to get these things right? And how surprising is it to you that when something like this, something fundamental like representation comes up, that we get a ruling like this? It's not surprising because I've seen it. You know, I've seen I've seen death penalty cases upheld over um other things, you know, missing a, a filing deadline by a few days or, you know, things like that. So it doesn't surprise me to see, um, you know, something so serious and being trivialized and, and you know, dismissed out of hand for um, technical reasons or, or trivialities. So it doesn't surprise me, but it it is a malfunction of the system for this to happen. Um, in every state, you know, and I don't want to get too nitpicky, but there were parts of, of these cases that had that that hinged on Arizona state laws and how those laws are drafted and what they say. And so you're going to have 50 different versions of that at minimum. So um, it's hard sometimes to apply a blanket rule um, across the state. The law likes to be specific. The court likes to interpret laws very narrowly and, and very specifically, and that can result in inconsistent outcomes. Yeah, talking to him, Carpenter, our good friend, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com, an attorney. Uh, we're going to take a quick break because we went a little long there. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about this case, Shin versus Ramirez. Uh, also getting to a little bit more about representation, how it's fundamental to our system, but also how it keeps coming up over and over again. We start talking about the lower level problems in the criminal justice system, how representation at those early stages and lower level of the criminal justice system is greatly affecting a lot of the problems we're seeing even in the headlines. More with M. Carpenter on Her Tell right after this. Donaldson, uh, joined by our legal expert, M. Carpenter. She's a frequent contributor to this program. 
uh, and she is the senior editor at ordinary-times.com. You can catch her writing there. Um, let's get to some basics here because this case, this Supreme Court case is about representation. How big of a problem is representation in the criminal justice system right now? You've been a prosecutor. Um, you've done uh, like all attorneys have to do. You've done uh, work as a public defender type work where you have to do the pro bono work. How big a problem is this? Because when we start talking about things like bail reform, we start talking about things like pretrial confinement. We start talking about how the criminal justice system does a better job of making criminals than deterring criminals. A lot of those streams start crossing and kind of have their headwaters with representation, don't they? Yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing when you have an inexperienced attorney representing you in traffic court. Um there, the, the consequences are not so dire, the stakes are not so high, um, and we have to learn somewhere, right? You know, criminal attorneys don't just go into court their first time with, uh, you know, knowing all the ins and outs and, and not ever going to make a mistake. But when we're talking about more serious crimes where the stakes are higher, where we're talking about life in prison or death, uh, there needs to be the most effective counsel possible in these cases. And the people who dedicate their lives to this kind of work are generally very competent and, and uh, very well versed in these cases, and they're going to do a great job. Even the best lawyer makes mistakes, okay? And so even the best lawyer at a trial could lead to a valid, ineffective assistance of counsel claim. So it's not necessarily that the lawyers were bad or negligent, although that is definitely the case at times. Um, it's just there's so many little things, mechanisms in the courtroom that uh, can lead to an error. Judges, you know, judges are reversed all the time and they're supposed to be the legal expert in the room, but they make mistakes. There's always going to be mistakes. So I think that that's the area where there needs to be deference and to not even listen to the evidence of the, that the defendant has or the argument that they have of that, you know, listen, there's all this evidence out there. My lawyer didn't even bring it up. And when you have, in, like in these cases, multiple levels of attorneys who have failed to bring that evidence up, I think you want to look at why did that happen? Were they lacking in funds to hire an investigator? Did they not have the money to pursue the, those those avenues. And it's always a quirk of the system, especially if you're a court-appointed attorney, which a lot of them are in these cases, when you want money for something, when you need an expert or you need an investigator, who decides whether or not you get that money? The state, the judge, the state, the very system that whose mercy your client finds themselves at, they decide whether or not you're going to, to get those funds. You have to ask the judge. And the, the prosecutor has the opportunity to stand there and argue against it, you know, and that's that's a, a serious disadvantage to a defendant in our system. How much um, pretrial confinement and simple procedural stuff could be cleaned up by changing how that system of representation works? I know there's not enough lawyers to go around um, and especially not enough good lawyers. And I'm not trying to discourage anybody, but same thing with basketball coaches or shoe salesmen or whatever, you know, there's the really good. And then there's the really bad. And there's this vast gulf in between on the spectrum of good to bad, right? It's like any other profession. There's only so many good ones to go around. Um, is there any kind of reform or regulatory or legislative thing we can do here to take that burden off? Because it sure seems to me that a lot of the issues we're having in, in the criminal justice system starts there at those entry level kind of, you know, the initial hearings, the indictments, things like that. 
there seems to be so much room for reform there, but there doesn't really seem to be any answers coming on to what we can do about any of it. Right. Public defenders, especially in the lower level in trial courts, their their caseloads are humongous. And I've seen um, experienced, uh, very competent public defender, at least one I know of in, in my area, who lost his license for a while because he had a client sit in jail for months and he had not filed any motions or, and that was not purposeful or or intentional on his part. It was simply a matter of one fell through the cracks for him. Um, Inexcusable. And, you know, he, he had to have received some sort of a punishment from the bar for that. And he should have. Um, But when you overload lawyers with cases like this, that's what's going to happen. And when, um, you know, your clients don't have bail and they're sitting in jail, um, you know, that impedes their ability to contact you. It impedes your ability. You can't spend all day sitting in the jail interviewing your clients. So it impacts, you know, how much time you get to spend with your client to prepare. Um, it, It definitely clogs up the system. So I don't think, I think bail reform on lower level cases is definitely uh, an avenue and in some higher level cases, depending on the facts of the case and, and what they're actually charged with. Now, do I, do I think that anyone charged with capital murder is going to find themselves in a position where they uh, should have bail reform uh, applied to them and that they're not going to sit in jail? Probably not going to ever happen. Um, but yeah, there, there are things that can be done to ease the burden on the attorneys, which would in turn would help the clients. Uh, M. Carpenter joining us, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com and an attorney. Um, you've been on both sides of this. You've been a prosecutor. You've been a trial attorney. Uh, you've done other kind of legal work. How big of a problem is having good lawyers right now? Because we keep seeing the stats about law schools. We know the overarching problem of the cost of secondary education anyway, the cost of law schools even more so in most cases. You've talked about your own path and difficulty in becoming a lawyer. Um, How big of an issue is this going forward? Because if there's not enough attorneys to go around, then these representational issues are going to get even worse. The projection is that uh, law is going to have an issue with lawyers going forward. Talk about how that affects both sides, both the prosecution side and the defense side, because again, uh, this is supposed to be an adversarial system, which means those are supposed to be equally matched sides. And that's just not the case when we get rulings like this, is it? Correct. Um, you know, public defending doesn't pay very well. Um, it pays even less if you're not part of a public defender's office, but you're on what we call the appointment list or in federal court, they call it the panel attorneys, where you know you get assigned cases that for whatever reason, the local public defender's office can't take it, either they're busy or they have a conflict. Um, and so those what you have there are people who are kind of doing criminal law part time. So um, and they're getting paid very little. It's been a few years, but as far as I know, they haven't raised the rates. When I was doing criminal defense, you made $45 an hour for outside of court work and $65 an hour for being in court. That sounds like a lot of money to most people, you know, an hourly rate. But when you think that private counsel is paid, you know, <laughs> five times that or more, um, you, you, you know, you, you started to maybe at times get what you pay for. Um, and so if you can't, if you have inexperienced lawyers or lawyers that, that come into that profession and they find out they're not going to make good money there, they're going to go do something else. So you might lose the cream of the crop. You might lose the better lawyers because they're going to need to go where the money is because, you know, they have student loans to pay. Um, 
so you do run a risk of not having quality representation. And when you don't have quality representation on the defendant's side, you know, that means that the prosecution side, um, you have the potential for errors there. If you don't have a defense attorney to stand up and object or, or to uh, stop a prosecutor from making a mistake that violates that defendant's rights, what's supposed to happen and often does happen is that person's conviction is going to be reversed on the other end because there wasn't a competent defense counsel to raise the issue or effectively in court. And so, you know, the prosecution is going to end up losing out what hopefully when a um, appellate court looks at that case. So, you know, you need good, good lawyers on both sides and prosecutors offices pay a little more than defense than criminal defense uh, public defenders offices, but it's not, it's still not a lot of money comparatively in the legal profession. Back to where we started with the uh, Shin versus Ramirez case. Uh, what kind of case law is going to have to articulate through the system to get something like this reviewed again? Because now, now it's done. So now we're back to that precedent word again. Uh, this is going to be the standard for a while. What kind of case law would it take to get this reviewed again by maybe a future court or a re-examining of this court? I don't think the future is in case law for this issue. I think it's a legislative issue. Um, I think that the statute that they relied on is what they need to to revisit here. Um, there are two exceptions in that statute for when the underlying um, lower court and not being raised in the lower court can be excused. And this court says that these two individuals, their situations don't fit either of those exceptions. It would not be difficult to um, add an exception to that that would include um, when counsel is ineffective. My concern is with that um, Sixth Amendment right to counsel when they're saying, well, you didn't have a right to counsel at this stage. So any errors that that lawyer made are your fault. Whereas if that had been in the trial court at that level, the errors would be the lawyer's fault and not held against the defendant. So um, my worry is that that would be expanded, that we'll start um, looking at that right to counsel with less reverence than we do now. Yeah. M. Carpenter, always excellent stuff. One of our favorite people, uh, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. Let folks know where your Twitter feed is because we can't get you to write anything to save our lives lately because I'm joking. I'm joking. She's busy saving the world with her day job right now, uh, but she'll be back soon. Uh, let folks know where they can find your old stuff at Ordinary Times and your social media. You're one of the best uh, Twitter followers out there. Uh, so share that with folks until they get you back on her tell again. Sure. Yes, you can find my writing at ordinary-times.com. Um, and I know uh, I'm not as prolific as I would like to be or as I used to be, but um, like you said, I am busy. So uh, I owe you something one of these days soon, I promise. Uh, but yes, please do find me on Twitter at WVSquireS. That's E-S-Q-U-I-R-E-S-S. -S, and, and give me a follow so that I can catch up with Andrew someday. Uh well, we all have to have dreams. Uh, M. Carpenter, we always appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the legal insight. And uh, we'll have you back again soon next time the Supreme Court does something really hot, which is probably going to be uh, next Tuesday because we got a couple more Tuesdays of this court term to go yet. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, man.
to welcome back to her tell a couple other interesting tidbits out of the primary elections from last night. Uh, the Bush dynasty is on hold, if not dead. George P. Bush lost his uh, runoff bid against Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, 67%, 32%. All these figures, by the way, are coming from our friends over at Elections Daily. Uh, so Ken Paxton ends uh, George P. Bush's political ambitions for the moment. Um, over in Alabama, a couple interesting things happened that we need to discuss. Uh, Kay Ivey, the governor, uh, multiple people running in that primary. She easily cleared 50%, ended up with 54%. Uh, so she will be going for re-election there in the U.S. Senate race in Alabama. Kind of a big ticket item because Mo Brooks was endorsed by former President Trump, who then rescinded his endorsement of Mo Brooks. And then Mo Brooks fell in the polling and then made a big comeback. He came back enough against uh, businessman Michael Durant. You might remember that name from Black Hawk Down. He was the pilot that was taken as a prisoner by the mob for a while before being released. Uh, he managed to get a runoff with Katie Britt, keeping her to 45%. So there will be a runoff in Alabama's Senate race later on. Uh, we will keep an eye on that election. In Georgia, uh, Herschel Walker, as expected, easily won. Uh, the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate. He will go on to face the incumbent, Senator Raphael Warnock. We've already talked about this with multiple people on this show. Uh, this is a race to really pay attention to, and it's going to be for all the wrong reasons. This is going to get really, really ugly. This is going to be really, really loud. There's going to be a lot of people to go a lot of places they should not go in an election, but they're going to go there because of the candidates, because of the issues at hand. Just going to warn you right now, keep your bearing that U.S. Senate race in Georgia is going to be ugly, ugly stuff. I'm afraid. Hope I'm wrong. Hope both candidates keep it above board. But more importantly, hope all the supporters of both candidates keep it above board. Uh, that Raphael Warnock race in the Georgia runoffs got really ugly, got really personal. A lot of stuff was said that shouldn't have been said. Hopefully they don't do that here. But I'm skeptical. I'm cynical. I'm afraid that's going to be a mess of a race to watch. Uh, we'll continue to cover these elections. Make sure you support our friends over at elections-daily.com. They did another great job on the breaking news, breaking down the elections live. Make sure you're following and supporting our friends like Joe Zemanski, like Eric Cunningham that are on this program. We will continue with more Her Tell right after this. to her tell let's talk about love van halen would sing about uh this is from india times there's no defining age to fall in love as this elderly man's story is a beautiful example of the same a 95 year old man has proven to the world that there's no one age to find love and has tied the knot for the first time in his life according to wales online julian moyle julian moyle first met his wife valerie williams 84 in a church 23 years ago however they did not propose to her until very recently in february the couple got hitched on May 19th in the same church they met in Cardiff, UK. The ceremony was conducted at the Calvary Baptist Church and around 40 friends and family attended the service. She's so kind and giving, you know, Mr. Julian said of his wife before turning to her and adding, I'm looking very much forward to your companionship. Talking about their wedding day, Miss Valerie said, I can't believe it. While Mr. Julian described it as marvelous and like a new year, 
The couple added they've been looking forward to just being together. They also said they will be celebrating their honeymoon later this year with a trip to Mr. Julian's homeland, Australia. When asked how it felt to be married for the first time at the age of 95, Mr. Julian said, it's like Janice, who had a face on the front of his head and another on the back of his head so he could look into the future and into the past. It's like a new year, isn't it, in a way? So I'm looking very much forward to the companionship. Miss Valerie described her new husband as a fine gentleman, while Mr. Julian described his wife as simpatico. She's so kind, so giving, loving and giving. The 95-year-old kept repeating himself. According to the Wales Online, he immigrated from Australia to the UK in 1954. He was the first soloist in the Welsh National Opera between 1970 and 1982. By the way, at 95 years old, he performed at his own wedding. Good for them. God bless the couple. May they have many years of great companionship and love. Good to be in love whatever age, isn't it? That'll do it for her to tell. A lot going on in the world. We will continue to try our best to turn down the noise of the news cycle as best we can. And all of this is because you keep listening and watching and commenting and sharing and subscribing. So thank you very much. So wherever you are across the street or around the world, we greatly appreciate you. We hope you're well. We hope you are well fed and we'll talk to you again tomorrow for more. Her- we'll talk to you again tomorrow for more Herd Tell. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.